0: Okay, let's get started. Um, my name is Conson Locke, I'm a lecturer here at the LSE and I'm going to be chairing today's lecture. Um, welcome to the LSE Summer School Lecture Series. We've got a great series for you through July and August and we're kicking it off today with Professor Kostas Markides who is a visiting professor here at the LSE this year. He's normally at London Business School where he's a professor of strategic and international management. He's originally from Cyprus, and he has his bachelor's and master's in economics from Boston University. He also has an MBA and DBA from Harvard Business School. He's published several books on strategy and innovation. And his research examines management of diversified firms and the use of innovation and creativity to achieve strategic breakthroughs. And tonight, he's going to be talking about business strategy in a global age.
1: Thank you very much. Speak to the microphone. Hello, hello. It's a good thing you applauded, you know, before I even gave the speech, in case you don't want to applaud at the end of it. How many of you are from Cyprus? Anybody from Cyprus? Greece. good enough. Okay. Wow. How many from Spain? Oh, look at nice How many? Anybody from the Netherlands? <laughs> <laughs> It's only a game. <laughs> <laughs> okay, thank you very much for being here. I tend to walk up and down, so I think I hope you can hear me at the back. I can have a very loud voice. Got, I'd like to talk to you about business strategy in the global age. And I'd like to start off with a very interesting story. It's, it's interesting to me. Uh, this is the worst fire disaster in the history of the United States. It took place in 1949 in a place called Mount Gulch in Montana. Let me show you a photograph of where that fire took place. It's an old photograph from 1949, so you can't see many things here. The only thing you need to see is the fact that there is a river here. Can you see the river? This is the Missouri River going to Montana. And then the other thing you need to see is that there is a mountain range here. There it is, then a valley and then another mountain range. That's landscape. Okay? The fire started here, there was a big fire right here on the edge of this mountain range, very close to the river. So what they did, they airlifted 15 firemen under the leadership of uh, a gentleman called, what, actually it's Wagner. Wagner Torch. 15 firemen were airlifted right here, and they were told to move towards the fire and put it out Okay. let me tell you what happened next I've I've redrawn this photograph it's now a diagram but uh, I don't want you to be confused there's the river yes there's the mountain range there's the other mountain range there's the fire big fire here so the 15 firemen under the leadership of Wagner were dropped at point number 1 and then they started walking towards the fire at point number two, the leader of the group said, you wait here and I will go closer to the fire to see what's happening and come back and tell you what you should do. He walks forward to fire, uh, uh, area number three. He notices that the fire is much bigger, much more aggressive than they expected. And realizes that they cannot really put it out with the resources they have. So what does he do? he rushes back to his men at point number 2 and says change your plan we cannot put out the fire anymore let's walk, let's run rather towards point number 4 where we could try to fight the fire from the side but if we cannot put it out at least we can jump in the water and save ourselves good plan? very good plan so they all Run towards point number four, but unfortunately they discovered something nasty happened at point number four, which is the fire had spread to this area here, and basically that meant that they had no access to the river anymore. They were trapped. At which point, what happened? They panicked. You would panic too, wouldn't you? They panicked, and what did they say? They said, run! Run back to point number one to be airlifted out of this mess. <laughs> That funny guys. <laughs> So they started running back. Point number 5, the leader says to his men, Drop all your equipment, drop your clothes, run as fast as you can. Point number 6, they reach an area, there were no trees there, just tall dry grass. That is bad news. You know why? Fire travels faster with dry grass rather than trees. And at point number 6 basically they made the calculation that this wall of fire chasing them will catch up with them within 90 seconds. You have 90 seconds to leave. What do you do?
2: Climb
1: up the mountain. What? Climb up the mountain. Climb up the mountain! <laughs> you just spend an hour running up and down. You know, it's like, oh. oh, oh. <laughs> climb up the mountain. Any other propositions? Pray! <laughs> Doesn't usually work in a situation like this, but what can you do
2: like
1: it? Like the leader took out the match and in front of him, he burned a big, a big circle. There's a big circle he burned on the ground. He walked into the circle, stood there like this and called his men, Come and follow me, he said. Would you follow him? Yes. Nobody followed him. You are too young and naive of yourself. Nobody followed him. Basically what happened, uh, 13 of them kept on running. Mm-hmm. By point number 8, the fire caught up with them and burned them all. Two of them were really lucky and they walked, ran up the mountain. And it was the only area in that mountain where there was no vegetation, no grass, no trees and they survived and obviously the other person who survived was this guy, the leader who stayed in there yeah? I mean, we could explore as to why did they not follow him they didn't follow him because he had no credibility why not? because in the last hour he's the one who got me into this mess (laughs) he changed the plan three times on me point two, point three, point four and so on and every time he changed the plan he didn't work! So what makes me think that it's going to work now? Plus, human beings have a tendency, when they are faced with situations like that, to panic. And when we panic, we don't think. We use gut feeling, gut reaction, to solve that problem. But it doesn't matter. The reason I use that story is to define for you what do I mean by strategy. Because here I am talking about business strategy in the global age. So the first thing we need to do is to what the hell is strategy. And I have a very simple definition, Given this story, I have a very simple definition for you. Strategy is nothing more than the choices that we make as to what we're going to do as a company, as an organization, and then motivating our employees, our people to follow us. This guy, the fire example, he's made some choices. Like, let's run this way, drop your equipment, do this, do that. He made those choices, but obviously, he failed to motivate the people to follow you. So, strategy is both. making the difficult choices, and also motivating people to follow you. Now, in business strategy, the choices that you have to make are very well defined. Forget the example of the fireman. If you're dealing with a company and you say, what choices do I have to make as a company? For my strategy, those choices, have to do with three things only. Only three things. I call it the who, the what, and the how of the organization. The who is, who shall I target as my customers, and who shall I not? Because you cannot sell to everybody, you have to select. What shall I offer them, and what shall I not? And finally, how am I going to reach those customers, what kind of technology will I use, what kind of distribution, and so on and so forth. That's what strategy is all about, business strategy at least. Because there's a strategy about a variety of things. There is sex strategy, the strategy you're going to follow about, you know, sex or whatever, whenever you want to have sex. I'll leave that to you. I'm not going to talk about that. I'm talking about business strategy here. The choices that an organization has to make, have to do with the who, the water, the cow. You have to make these choices, and you have to motivate people to follow you. Not because you give them money, but because they want to be there to work with you, and so on and so forth. There is... One more thing to know about the choices you make in strategy, in business strategy, which is that the choices you make are there to differentiate yourself relative to your competitors. So it's not just any choices, it's choices that differentiate you. Differentiation comes not only from the products you sell, but from everything you do. Just to give you a few examples to make my point. How many of you have rented a car in your lives? Okay, so if I were to ask you which company is the biggest car rental company in the world? What would you tell me? Avis <laughs> <80s> no? Hertz, <laughs> no? Alamo. Alamo, no? Six, Six-, Six no? Europe car, no? <laughs> Enterprise. Enterprise, What done, good job. no? I don't know, I reckon. <laughs> If you want to go and buy it, huh? <laughs> Make sure you give an extra one to your father or mother for Christmas. <laughs> <laughs> it's actually enterprise. The biggest car of company in the world is enterprise. Nobody knows that, by the way. You know, one in a hundred knows that, so. What's the secret of their success? Well, think of it. Cats, Avis, Alamo, Eurocard 6, all the current companies that you have in mind. If you ask them, who do they target as their customers? Who do they target? Everyone. Not everyone, they don't target everyone. Who do they target? To travel. Travelers. They target people who travel. And you reach another city, another country, you need a car, you're ready. And they build their strategy to serve the travelers. Enterprise started out in 1957, and the first question they ask is, who other than the travelers can I t- can I focus on? Can you think of any other customer who may need to rent a car, not because they are traveling, but for another reason? These guys are
2: in the shop. What kind? The car is
1: in the shop. The car is in the shop. You just had an accident, or you have your annual service, whatever, you take your car to the body shop, the mechanic there says it's going to be here for a week, two weeks. What do you say? Oh my God, what am I going to do without the car for two weeks? Let's <laughs> rent one. Would you go to the airport to rent one? (laughs) Of course not. So enterprise has all their offices downtown, next to the body shop. Would you use the travel agents like hers to push the product to the consumer? No. You use insurance companies, and so on and so forth. Enterprise has differentiated itself, not so much by offering a different product, but by targeting a totally different customer, a different who. You can (laughs) differentiate yourself by... Are a different customer from everybody else. Or another example, how many of you drink Starbucks coffee? Look at that. What's wrong with it? <laughs> why do you drink Starbucks? Give me a reason why you drink this is it the best coffee in the world? Uh, Never. Okay? You <laughs> mentioned <laughs> Starbucks in Italy, they throw things at you. They go, <laughs> why do you drink Starbucks? Everyone drinks Starbucks. Why is that? <laughs> It's convenient. It's like McDonald's. Yeah. It's everywhere. Why don't you drink McDonald's, then? <laughs> <laughs> it's cheaper. It's all McDonald's, only a pound, as opposed to $2.79 on Starbucks. In- Sorry? That company specializes in coffee. Oh. I specialize and by that, you mean I prefer a special brand than McDonald's? <laughs> Branding. So when you buy Starbucks, what do you buy? The brand, what does the brand say? What does it say when you see me working with a Starbucks? <laughs> <laughs> what does it say? This guy is a cool dude, yeah! He's uh, he and so on, alright! So you buy it for convenience, you buy it for the branding that the image you project. Any other reason? Options, many options. Many options, right, very good. So you get cappuccino, mocha, cappuccino, ice, yes, cappuccino, anything you want. Various options, anything else? you go and sit in a Starbucks for hours? Yes, with your laptop? Well, yeah. Say usually say that. You know, i going to the there and drink coffee and wear what they don't. As if they don't have an office. Yeah? <laughs> <laughs> now think about it. How does Starbucks differentiate itself? Well, if you ask people why do you buy that product, they don't say I buy it because it's the best coffee in the world. No. But they say I buy it because it's convenient, it has options, it's located across my home, it gives me an image that I like to project and so on. <laughs> a variety of other reasons. They don't sit there and say, I'm going to sell it because it's the best copy in the world. They have differentiated themselves in terms of what they are offering. So my point here, if I take you back, is that you can differentiate yourself not only by having a different product, but by having a different customer base to focus on, like enterprise, Or maybe by having a different value proposition to the customer, what am I offering? Or even by having a different way of selling to the customer. How many of you, you're probably too young actually if you do this, but how many of you have purchased a Louis Vuitton (laughs) hatback? Oh (laughs) dear. Which one, the graffiti one or the the traditional one? Ooh, look at that. Look at that. Can you show it again? Can you show it again? It's lovely, you know? And how much was that handbag? Was it about a thousand? <laughs> 500? 400. You didn't buy it in the streets of Hong Kong, too. <laughs> <laughs> Anyway, I, I do a little work with Rivikon and I asked them, how could you justify selling handbags to people for a thousand euros? You know what they tell me? We don't sell handbags. Really? You have be fooled. <laughs> What is it that you sell? And being French, they always do this to me. You sell this? What the hell is that? What the hell? What is that? <laughs> you know what they say? We don't sell handbags. We sell? Dreams! Dreams! dreams. Very good! You've been reading Fortune magazine, do <laughs> <laughs> What am I selling? I am not selling handbags. I am selling dreams. And I tell them, I get lots of them for free every night in my own bed. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So the point is, you have to make these choices. These choices have to be differentiated, not only in terms of the product, but in terms of the who, the what, and the cow. And then you have to sell them, these choices, to your employees so that they get motivated and they say, yes, I'm gonna follow this guy and sell these products in this way and so on. Make choices, differentiate yourself, motivate people to follow you. That's, in my opinion, the narrow definition of what strategy is all about. Now, the question then is, if that is what strategy is, how is this globalization thing affecting strategy? What has changed as a result of globalization that affects strategy? Obviously, many things have changed, but in the interest of time, I put down three things that I'd like you to focus on. Number one is, the world has become much more interconnected now. Information flows and people go from one place to the other. Basically what that means is that changes that happen in another part of the world, they come and affect you very quickly in your part of the world as well. It's this interdependence now. That's one thing that has happened. The other obvious thing is that there's been a severe reduction in barriers across countries. And by barriers, I mean language barriers, political barriers, cultural barriers. You know, I you bet there are how many nationalities are there in this room right now. You know, I want 50 different nationalities in one room. Can you imagine the same situation 20, 30, 40 years ago? 50 different nationalities in one room? Of you know. You'd be So, basically, it ideas, people, practices, and products. They travel across borders much more quickly now. Something happens in America, the next day, boom, you hear about it. Happened to me the other day, I've heard about this new thing called Facebook. I don't know if you know about it. Brand new thing sign up for it as well, you know, in case you haven't heard of it, you should go for it. (laughs) (laughs) And, obviously, the the workforce has become very globalized. So, in England, you find all kinds of uh, (coughs) nationalities. Other parts of the world, you have all kinds of nationalities. So, the question is, given these three changes, there are more, by the way, but these three changes, how have they affected strategy, or how we execute strategy? So, let me, just for each change, I'm going to give you one thing to think about. First thing... Because there are no borders anymore. Ideas and people and products come across the world very, very quickly. But this kind of means that it's becoming more and more difficult to differentiate oneself. Why? Because even if you come up with a wonderful idea, now, here, in London, the next day, somebody else in China, in Japan, in Africa is going to hear about it. Your competitor will find out very, very quickly and say, Look at this guy, he he's doing this, he's making lots of money, I'm going to go and do it as well. <laughs> right? So it's become much more difficult in today's world, in my opinion, to differentiate yourself. Or you can differentiate yourself and it's not going to last for long. Somebody's going to come and imitate. Okay? And what does that imply? Innovation is the key then. Creativity and innovation are the key ingredients of success in today's world. You innovate, somebody imitates you, you innovate again, somebody imitates you, you innovate again, it goes on like that. It's a rat race. You keep running, running, running. Obviously, innovation and creativity has always been important. I'm not going to say, well, you know, it's only important now. It was important 1,000 years ago, it was important 100 years ago, it's important today, it's going to be important. But I'm just saying that, relatively speaking, it's become much more important as a source of competitive advantage. If strategy is all about differentiating ourselves, then innovation is the way into differentiation. It's easier said than done. And I'd like to prove it to you by giving you a little exercise now. I don't want you to get too stressed, I took this exercise from my local elementary school, so it's very easy. (laughs) If you think of the answer to my exercise, can you please raise your hand, don't shout please. Please don't shout the answer. It's just a point for everyone. Are you okay with that? Yes. Can I say that again? Don't shout the answer. <laughs> Thank you. Here we go. I have in my mind an English word that has four letters. Those of you smiling, it's not the word you have in my mind. <laughs> and, and I know the last three letters of this word. They are a n y. So, basically, I'm looking for a letter to put up a frog to create an English word. And my question is, how many of you can think of a letter to put up a file? It is, isn't it? Okay, can I ask someone the front? What letter did you come up with? M? very good. Many? Is that what you came up with? Anybody came up with something else? Yes, Nani, that's double M It can happen not happen. somebody was not paying attention in elementary school. <laughs> <laughs> Nani <laughs> is a double M Y of course. Okay. Is, it? is it with Y again? Nani? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Okay. Any other word? Z. <laughs> Z. Z. Okay, very good, which means crazy. It's actually an American word, so it officially doesn't count as an word. But many, and so on. Very good. That's the word. So here comes the second part of my problem. Again, if you think of the answer, please don't shout. Just raise your hand. I have in my mind another English word. Same principle, four letters. This one ends with N1, Not A-N-Y, E-N-Y. And the question is, can you think of a letter? Just one letter to put out the front to create a word. Maybe we could say it's not Danny. Like penny, <laughs> It's <laughs> not penny. It's not any any money. So It's not penny. It's not the name. It's not the English penny. That's double. M. Raise your hand if you think of the answer, please. So two, four, six, eight. That's pretty good, actually. About 20 30 people in the room. Pretty good. Are we the volunteer? Who did not come up with a word? Who wants to volunteer? You don't even have to move from your seat. Thank you. You did not come up with a word? Oh, yeah. Oh you, No, no, I here here who did not come up with a word. Who did not come up with a word? You did not come up with a word. How did you think about the problem? What, what went through your head? Maybe I just the last No, no, you don't have anything. Don't think of it as a What I'm asking is. How did you think? What did you do in your head to come up with a web? Anchoring from the first word. Yeah, but what did you do? You're getting to passwords where they are anchoring from the first word. Ooh. <laughs> what did you do? Did you go through the alphabet? How many of you went through the alphabet? All of you go through the alphabet. Did you come up with a web? Can I chime in you? Let's go through the alphabet together. From A to Z. <laughs> okay. I'll give you the letter, you shout the word even if it doesn't make sense. Is <laughs> that okay? That's and I'll repeat it for everyone. Here we go. A, Benny. A, B,
2: Benny. Ben, C, 10, C,
1: 10, 10, E. Why are you laughing? What did people get? Deny. To deny something. You know what deny means? It means to say no. It's a word made famous by President Clinton, isn't it? <laughs> I deny I can refer to the It's an easy word, isn't it? A, B, C, D, voila, we get it. Yet yeah, we missed it. Why did you miss it? Thinking
2: than... You're thinking in one direction.
1: Yes, you're thinking in a very narrow way. Why? You're trying to create a word that sounded like a festival. Many. Now, please think of the implication of that. that If one word, just one word, is enough to condition the human mind, can you imagine what 10, 20, 30 years of experience and education have done to the human brain? And I'm not trying to be cynical or sarcastic. We all tend to think like this, in a very narrow way. And here I come saying innovation, creativity, that's the solution. Yeah. Easier said than done. So, I would propose to you that rather than that, encourage people to be creative, it's better in the modern corporation if we actually institutionalize the culture that allows people to question everything. Why this? Why that? Why are you doing this? What does it mean institutionalize a culture? The best example I know that highlights what I mean by this word, institutionalizing that kind of a culture, is the following. Sally Wright was the first U.S. woman astronaut. She was put on the space shuttle in 1982-83, around that time. And the day that they were going to go into space, there was a, a press conference, and one of the reporters asked Sally Wright, Sally, do you think this is a great day for American women that finally we have a woman astronaut? Do you know what Sally replied? He said, no, this is not a great day for American women. The great day would be the day when we put a woman to go to space and not be Hey, it's a woman. <laughs> Why? Because it's so normal. You don't notice it anymore. So what? It's a woman. We've had it so many times before. It's like when you go to the toilet. Have you noticed? <laughs> Do people stand up and say, they are ghost so I get to get toilet. <laughs> They don't notice it today. <laughs> of course, because it's normal. It just happened. Yes. That's what I mean by institutionalizing. It happens and nobody notices. <coughs> questioning. That is the source of, of creativity. You have to create an environment in the organization which allows people to question things, because questioning is what leads to creativity and innovation. You're sitting in your garden under an apple tree, an apple falls on your head. What do you say? Ow, shit, what did you say? <laughs> what did you say? Why? Why did it fall down? Why not go right or left? I know it's human nature, when you throw things up, they come down. But why? He didn't know, he thought about it, he came up with an answer. Gravity. You go home to take a bath. You fill the bathtub with water. You step in clean. all the water flows on the bathroom floor. What do you say? Before you say, Eureka, you say, shit, look at all the <laughs> What did Archibides say? He said, why? Why did it overflow? Why? How many minutes is in the path? Huh? Now it's on the floor. Why? He didn't know. He thought about it. He came up with an answer. Flotation. The source of creativity is creating the questioning thing. But unfortunately, we say this, but instead we get in organization. And there's a story there, but I don't have time to tell you. That's what we do. And that's what we do with you as well. From the moment you go to school, instead of encouraging you to express your individuality and creativity, we force you to conform. School systems around the world are designed to destroy your creativity. And we do a fantastic job as well, by the way. (laughs) And then you end up in the workforce, you go into companies and, you know, you destroy the creativity you once had as children, and the boss comes and says, you need to be creative. <laughs> yeah, don't, don't come with me, yeah. It's gone, it's dead. The yeah. answer is a catch. Okay, moving on. In an interconnected world, it means that changes in one part of the system get amplified and transmitted around the world. Changes in China affect you, here in England, in America, and so on. As a result, changes and disruptions seem to be hitting us from every angle. It's this feeling that my club, you know, it's like in a We've beat hit from left, right, from everywhere. You don't have a moment of peace anymore. You are continuously under pressure. We keep having to make decisions and choices under pressure when everything around us is changing. That's not good. That's not good and I'd like to prove it to you. Why people who try to make decisions under pressure, always, almost always, I'm not going to say always because human beings have a capacity to surprise us, but almost, <laughs> almost always, you put people under pressure, and situations like that, they end up doing stupid things. Let me just give you an example of this. This is an experiment tried out in New Jersey, the United States, in 1967. The psychologist, a professor from Stanford, went to a school in New Jersey where they were training people to become Catholic priests. He wanted to try the experiment on priests. Why? Because he said these are people who have a strong mind. They know what's right or wrong, they are going to do the right thing. So listen to what he did. He went to the entrance to the school and whenever a priest would come by, he would stop him and say, excuse me father, could I ask for a big favor? And when the priest would say, yes, what is it? He would tell him that today we invited here to our school some children from the local elementary school so that we can give them a tour of the place and talk to them about Jesus Christ. Right? Unfortunately, The priest who was supposed to talk to the kids, he's sick. He's in bed with the flu. And we're looking for a replacement. Can you go and talk to the children for about ten minutes? That's a request. What do you think most of the priests
2: said?
1: I said, yes, I've got ten minutes, I'll go and talk to the kids. Now, to half of the priests, he will say, thank you very much for agreeing to do it. The children arrived here
2: half an hour ago.
1: And for the last half hour, they've been seated in that room over there. Please go right away. To the other half of the priests, he would say, thank you very much for agreeing to do it. The children have not arrived here yet, but, you know, we expect them any minute now, and when they arrive, they're going go in that room over there. Could you please go and wait for them? You see the two scenarios. So half of the priests were put under? Time pressure. And half of them were... No. Then the only thing he did to complete the experiments, in the the corridor, going to this room, he put an old man lying down, having a heart (laughs) attack, and calling for help. So please imagine, you are the priest, you are walking towards his room, and right there in front of you, there's old man saying, help, help, for the doctor. The purpose of the experiment was to see whether the priests would stop to help the man. Would you have stopped? Yes. Can I see a show of hands, please? How many of you? How many of you would not have stopped? All of you have stopped? You think the trees will stop? Yes. Well, you wouldn't be able to experiment if they all <laughs> <or> stopped. <them. laughs> what we found the 50% of the trees that were told you have time, all of them stopped the 50% who were put under time pressure, 3 out of 10 will not stop. And these are
2: priests. <laughs> because you or me, you know,
1: the scum of the universe, I could understand. <laughs> <laughs> but these are priests. We pay them to stop, don't do it. <laughs> the performance indicators, you know. At first he thought, maybe they didn't see the old man. Maybe he, they, 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 they walked by and so quickly they didn't see him. So you know what he did? He repeated the experiment, and this time he put the old man kind of <laughs> <laughs> There we go. Yes, what? Three out of ten of the trees will call have City the old man jump over the <laughs> And God, You laugh! Did you see the video last week from New York City? How many of you have seen this video of this woman who was attacked in the streets of New York City? A homeless man tried to save her He was hit five times by a knife he fell down on the street in front of the hotel, and you see it on CTV cameras from 5 in the morning until 7 in the morning. Hundreds of people go by. Some of them walk by, this guy, you know, in blood there. He just stopped. Others stopped, took out their uh, phones, and took pictures of him. Others stopped and rolled him over to see if he's really dead. They saw lots of blood, and they let him have their head. It's the same thing. We do it all the time. I did it last week at the Circus. I did. I was late for a meeting, under time pressure. I was running towards the exit. I reached the stairs first, and then I, at the same time as me, this young lady came along and she was holding one baby like this and pushing a pusher with another baby inside. And she reached the stairs at the same time as me. And I'm in a hug, right? What do normal people do in situations like that? You say, can I help? And you pick up the push here and climb the stairs. What do you think I did? <laughs> I did not push I just of course. And how do you justify these things? How do you justify this things? Why? Why Do I feel bad that I didn't stop to help this woman? Of course not. I wouldn't be telling you the story if How <laughs> did I justify it myself? Yeah, time, pressure. time pressure, you know? Time pressure, priorities. Yeah! I look behind me, there were 10,000 people coming out of So I thought, one of them is going to stop. You know what they call that attitude that somebody else is going to do it? We call it social loafing. What does that mean? It's an experiment. You ask one person to shout as loudly as they can. That's the volume of their shout, of their shout. Then you put two people in the team. Shout as loudly as you can and I measure the individual effort. Then you put three people, four people, five people. You see what happens every time you increase the size of the teeth? Individual effort goes down. You get this behavior in organizations every time somebody uses the word, we. Have you heard them say that? We need to do this, they say. Mm-hmm. Do you know what they mean? We mean you, do. yes. Because <laughs> <American history. laughs> And when you agree with them and say, yes, I agree, we should do that, you know who you mean? You mean them, yeah. So they mean you, you mean them, and who ends up doing it? Nobody ends up doing it, yeah. Even worse, when you put people under pressure, when things are around them, changing all the time, how do they make decisions? Think of a safari. You're having a nice large of the safari when suddenly the lion shows up. Ah. <laughs> what do you do? You look at it and say, oh, sit down. <laughs> <laughs> What do you do? You run. You run. We all run. What basis do you use to make that decision? How did you make that decision? Right. Did you sit there and analyze the situation and do the calculations before you decide what did you do? It was it was a a small small feeling. feeling. Yes, you put people in a situation like that, they don't feel. Yeah. They don't base their decisions on thinking anymore. What do they do? Cut reaction. And cut reaction most of the time is wrong. So I'll put it to you. Have you ever played Russian roulette? <laughs> you never tried <learned> Russian roulette? <laughs> oh, <laughs> Believable. How old are you? You should try Let's play a game of Russian roulette. Are you ready for it? So the idea is to survive. This is it. Your objective in this game is to survive, not to die, okay? Here we go. You have a a, a pistol, a gun, and this pistol has six parts in it, six holes from the bullets. You know that there are three bullets in this pistol. And the only thing you know is that they are consecutive. So it's bullet, 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 empty, empty, empty. Get it? That's the gun we're going to use for this game. I'm going to give you two options to play this game. I like you to select the one you prefer, assuming that you want to leave. Okay? <laughs> Option one, we take this gun, roll it, shoot, boom. If you survive, roll it again, boom. If you survive, roll it again, boom. Three times. Option two, you pick up the gun, Roll it and go like this. Boom, boom, boom. Three times in a row. So, my question is what do you prefer? Option one or option two? Think about it for a minute. Think, think, think. Think, think, think before you answer, and I'll ask you for your vote. And i give you 30 seconds. Option one, which is roll it, should roll it, should roll it, should okay. Option one, the higher and bigger option two. It's even this actually. So, how did you decide? But you calculated probabilities. Well done, well done. Yeah. And even though you calculated probabilities, 50% choose option one, 50% choose option two. <laughs> Somebody must make a somewhere, yeah. If you have to calculate probabilities, what's the probability with the option one to survive? 18. Very good, it's 1 8, it's 50% times 50% times 50%, 50% every time. How about the option two? 18. Very good, it's 1 out of 6, you are all very well. This is the gun, imagine you roll it, and the first bullet, the first thing you hit is this one, what happens to you? You die, suppose it's this one, what happens? You die, suppose it's this one, what happens? You die. Suppose it's this one. You live because it's this one, this one, this one. You live. Suppose it's that one. You die because you live. You live then, <laughs> then you die. Suppose it's that one. You die. You live and then die. So, with the second one, the probability it is one out of six. What do you prefer, one out of, of six or one out of eight? Option two obviously superior in this case. This exercise is given to people on the street. Now, what's the big difference between the average person in the street and you? (laughs) (laughs) Exactly! Did you hear the answer? The average person in the street is not as segregated as you. The average person in the street doesn't even know what probabilities are, let alone calculate probabilities, like you did. So, when you give this problem on the street, 85% of people prefer option one. 85% on average. Now why is that? What basis do they use to make a decision? You know what they do? When you ask them, why did you choose option one? They say, well, it felt a safer option. Because with option two, I'm sitting there saying, BAM! 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 (laughs) I need to have three empties in a row! And there's only three in the car anyway. <laughs> so what is the chance that I'm gonna keep a four all empty in the car? It's like one in a million. <laughs> <laughs> you see what they are doing. <laughs> what decision mechanism did the majority use? You know, to decide they use gut feelings, just like you use gut feeling when the fire is upon you or when the lions upon you. In times of high pressure and volatility, which is what globalization has brought to us, people tend to dismiss thinking and planning as unhelpful. You cannot plan this. Things change so much. They rely instead on gut feeling. And I tell you, this is a trap. We know that, on average, gut feeling is wrong 60% of the times. Not always. Sometimes gut feeling is wrong. It's precisely in time like this that we need to think strategically. It's precisely in time like this. So, what have I said to you to summarize the point number two? What I've said is that because of this interconnected global web, changes will arrive to you from every angle repeatedly. It's going to look like a boxing match. As a result, we make decisions by very much on intuition rather than thinking. And then when we end up doing the silly things, we blame it on other people. Usually this person is looking at the uh, uh, attitude of somebody else is going to do it or he was supposed to do it and so on. My advice is, you shouldn't panic, you should take time to think even when the fire is upon you. Easier said than done isn't it? I have more to say in a moment, but I found a very nice video that highlights this point. Do not panic even in the face of disaster. Let me show you my video.
3: and then I landed here. That's not incroyable hein you hear that, dear?
2: Yes, it's crazy. Don't come on That's the message. I think it's easier. It's like, it's like my advice with the tech number one when
1: I said, you have to be creative. It sounds easy, it's not. The solution is not, let's be creative. The solution is, create a culture that allows to questioning. The same here, there I am saying, don't panic. Yeah, I see if, you know, the next time I see a lion, I'm going to sit there and say, yeah, let's think about it, right? <laughs> You're not going to do that. So it's not a good enough advice, this one, don't panic, think even in the face of disaster and so on. The only solution for strategy, you know, rather than expect individuals, To not panic in the face of change and pressure, we need to put in place an environment that allows the firm to be flexible, adjustable, and natural. What do I mean by that? Just very quickly. (coughs) Which economic system, capitalist or communist, one that we call war? Are you sure? Because sometimes in Europe, people say, Can I debate that one? (laughs) No. Capitalist one. The question, (coughs) of course, is why? What is about the capitalist system that allowed it to win over communism? A it allows people to question things, yeah. yeah. You know the story of Khrushchev, <laughs> when he became uh, uh, commander of the Soviet Union? The first speech he gave to the assembly of comrades was uh, criticizing uh, Stalin, which was unbelievable, because Stalin was considered a hero of the Soviet Union, but saved Soviet Union from the Nazis and so on, there was statues of him everywhere, and for the first time in 1954, Khrushchev stood up and gave a speech, criticizing Stalin and saying Stalin was a dictator and Stalin did all these atrocious things. And as he was talking on the podium like this, somebody from the back shouted to him, what were you doing, Comrade Khrushchev, when Stalin was doing all these atrocities? This is what somebody shouted from the back. And Khrushchev looked up and said, who said that? <laughs> and of course nobody raised their hand. And Khrushchev said, I, I repeat, who said that? And nobody raised their hand. And Khrushchev looked up the audience and said, ah, comrades, now you know what I was doing when Stalin was doing all these atrocities. <laughs> what was he doing? Being quiet. Because if you speak out, what happens? it of up your head. So that would be the last thing you're gonna say ever. Mm-hmm. Right? So you're saying that's one thing, the difference between capitalist and communist. In capitalists if you don't like our president, what do we do? We throw tomatoes at them. <laughs> <laughs> we demonstrate, we shout at them and things like that. You vote against them, yeah. Anyway, in the interest of trying to give you some of the characteristics of the capitalist system that you may want to think about. In the capitalist system, resources are allocated in a decentralized way, as opposed to communism where everything is centralized. In the capitalist system, lots of experimentation takes place. Thousand companies get started in Silicon Valley, even though, you know, only a few of them will succeed, most of them fail. Why? Because you have the opportunity to succeed, become filthy rich, see your face on business Week or Fortune magazine, have your own company, there are incentives in the system that encourage you to experiment. There are this ability to challenge authority, like uh, because, uh, you celebrate failure. You know, in the United States, I remember when I lived there, yeah. people, they would put on their CV whenever they started a the company and, and failed. They said, so, uh, I started three companies and all of them failed. In Europe, people hiding on their CVs. Sometimes you get lot of business school, when you interview them for the MBA, you look at the CV, they have everything, they have or not. and then they say, God, usual, 1997, 2000, nothing. Say, what happened during that three year period? And I was learning. <laughs> 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 so, so, if these are some of the things that allow the capitalist system to win, my point is the following. How many of them do we have inside the modern corporation? Think about it, please. In the modern companies, are resources allocated in the decentralized or centralized way? Centralized. Do you get a lot of experimentation or do you get your ketchup off? Ketchup off. (laughs) Do you allow for inefficiencies? No. No. Do you have multiple and different sources in financing? No. No. Do you charge authority? My last people, when was the last time you threw tomatoes at your CEO? President of the company. (laughs) The thing I'm joking, I tried it with my boss and I ended up being fired. <laughs> Look at that, please. All these characteristics of the capital system. how many of them do we have inside our own companies? None. If only we take some of them, I'm not saying all of them, if only we take some of these characteristics of capital and put them inside our organization. Like this. motivate someone from Greece. Different cultures require different approaches. But then all of a sudden you end up having to manage a team of people from 10, 20 different nationalities. How do you motivate? How do you get them to follow your strategy? And I'd like to, you know, pro- do, to propose to you like that you need to not only develop your strategy, but more importantly sell it to the employees so that they buy into it and they follow it. Selling a strategy requires much more than telling people about strategy. The poor guy, the fireman I talked about, he taught his people, this is a strategy, follow me. Nobody followed him. Selling something to people, but get their commitment requires it to go beyond communication. It actually requires, and I'll give you my little friend right here, to take people through four stages. First stage is, you communicate to them, what is it, the strategy? So that they say, I know what the strategy is, we have to do X, Y, try and so. But that's not enough. The second step should be explain why. Why are you following the strategy? So that people will say, mm, I know this is a strategy, and I understand why I should follow it. First thing is, make it believable. So that people say, I know what it is, I understand it. Yes, I think we can work on this and do it. Make it believable. The best, thing, best way to make something believable is demonstrate early victories. Show that it works. And then the final thing in selling something is when people will say I will follow this strategy is when you make them feel special. You make them feel like what do I mean by special? You go to a dinner party and people ask you where do you work? And you say I work uh, up Apple for computers. I am a student at LSC." I feel special for being there, for being part of that community and so on. That is the selling process that we need to do. So in summary, I started out saying, what are the three changes? What does that imply for strategy? The three things that I think we need to think about is, A, the need to institutionalize a culture that allows for questioning, to think about some of the features of capitalism, maybe import them into our organization, and the importance of not only Communicating the strategy, but selling the strategy. And let me leave you with one last thought there. It's all very nice. I've seen some of you take notes as well. That's very, very good. And I assume many of you will go out and buy not only my book, <laughs> but everything else alone. But I tell you the sad things. The sad thing is will you do any of these things now or in the future? What do you think? Never. Never. I'm sorry. Shall I prove it to you? You're to prove? This is a problem, you see, it's like uh, people walking by that woman in New York City. If you ask them, would you stop and tell the, 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 the guy? Of course they say yes, but what do they do? They don't do it. <coughs> How many of you smoke? You know it's bad for you. You know that, but I think you continue smoking. I know these things. Would I do them? <laughs> no. So I'm coming to you. Are you ready for my bit of exercise? Yeah. You want an exercise? Yeah. This one you can try at your next in a party. It goes down very, very well. I don't want you to be stressed, I took this from my local elementary school. Very easy exercise. I'll give you a minute to solve it. It helps if you use paper and pencil. Here we go. You have a cake and you have a knife. And you're allowed to cut the cake four times in straight lines. What's the maximum number of pieces you can cut the cake in? Don't show up the answer, think about it for a minute, please. Very quickly. You can use any method you want. You can even call a friend. <laughs> Ask the audience. Can you use your card player your black player, whatever you are. The only constraint is the cards have to be straight lines. Straight lines. Good. Things are pulling around. You have to think about it. It doesn't come automatically. 30 seconds. Before I tell you the answers, can I please ask you, how many of you tried to solve this exercise on your own? Raise your hand please. And how many of you talked to your neighbor? Very good. So the majority of you tried to solve it on your own. Those of you who tried to solve it on your own, can I ask, given the nature of this exercise, would you have been better off talking to your neighbor or not talking to your neighbor? Answer this question without looking at your specific neighbor this morning. <laughs> <laughs> age, what do you think? Talking to your neighbor, isn't it? So you know, you know that the best study here is to talk to my neighbor. And what do the majority of you do? You solve it on your own. What's wrong with you? <laughs> How many pieces did you get? Let's go through it in an organized way. How many got nine pieces? How many got eight by the way? Anybody got eight? Ten, eight? Okay. How many got nine? Is this how you got eight? Yeah? You yeah. only got ten? Ooh, quite a few. Eleven? Ooh. like this. <laughs> <laughs> Can I please ask you, what's the big difference between this way of cutting the cake and this way? <laughs> Not not equal. What's the big difference? Here, whoever cut it like this, those who got 8 or 9, you try to cut the pieces equally. Whereas to get 10 or 11, there's no attempt to cut them equally. Now, I, hang on, hang on, did I say, did I say that the pieces have to be equal? I didn't say that, so why is it that many of you assume that they have to be equal? Those of you who got 8 or 9, Assume that I wanted to be equal. Why did you make that assumption? There's a reason, guys, why you make assumptions. And the reason is how do you cut the cake at home? <laughs> Experience is what drives assumptions. Is this how you cut the cake at home? Or is this how you cut the cake at home? <laughs> okay? Can you imagine you're having a dinner party and you cut your cake like this? <laughs> <laughs> and you give one of your guests and say, you are eating 5 next to them. <laughs> so many of us assume that the pieces have to be equal because that's what we do at home. Yeah. And that constrains our thinking. You cannot think of 10 or 11. How many got 12? Yeah. How many got 14? <laughs> oh This is how you got 12. Yeah? you see what they need those who got 12? Yes. Two vertical cards and two horizontal cards. What is the big difference between those who got 8, 9, 10, or 11 versus those who got 12 or 14?
2: A three-dimensional cake?
1: <laughs> My God! You've never seen a three-dimensional cake Those who thought of it, they must have gone to the moon. Because here on Earth, we don't have three-dimensional cake, huh? Have you ever seen a cake which is not (laughs) three-dimensional? Even pancakes are three-dimensional, so why do you think the majority of you could not think of it as three-dimensional? Why? Because you made an assumption that the cards are vertical. Why did you make that assumption? Because that's the way you cut it at home. Do you ever cut a cake like this at home? (laughs) Of course not. How many got 16? How did you get 16? Uh, Use a formula. Uh, <laughs> that's the
2: mathematical way. You can, you can have the two pieces, the first thing, and the
1: second thing, you put the fourth piece. Very good. You take the cake, cut it once, put one piece on top of the other, cut them again, put the fourth piece on top, <laughs> cut them again. <laughs> 16. Because whenever I say that to my MBA, they always say, what kind of a mess is that? Yeah? <laughs> you don't have to stack them. You don't have to start, you don't want the mess. There's a cake, cut it once, put the two pieces next to each other, cut them again. <coughs> put the four pieces next to each other, cut them again. Put the eight pieces next to each other, cut them again. That's how you get 16. But that requires you to remove another assumption that you made, which is good.
2: <coughs>
1: yeah, most of us assume you don't move the pieces. Why? Because the way you cut that form is like that. You more than 16. Nobody got more than 16! But don't you nobody's know gonna find the answer. The answer is infinity, of course.
2: So is there couldn't you remove the assumption that your cutting utensil is something one
1: Very good. So maybe the blade of the knife is just not one blade, it's multiple blades. That will give you more. Or you remove the assumption about the shape of the cake. I didn't say the cake is round. <laughs> so I have to tell you how I discover it's more than that. Uh, 16. And this is a true story. I went to the birthday party with my 10-year-old niece here in London. Lots of kids there, so I thought I'd entertain them. I gave them the K exercise. After a minute, they all came back saying, the answer is 8, nine, ten. I said, no, the answer is 16. Can I explain why? And they were all very impressed at the, at the very same thing of this it's a smart, cool dude, whatever. <laughs> but there was one little girl who was looking from the body language, <laughs> 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 then like this. And she said, No, sir. She said, I think it's more than 16. <laughs> she said, What do you went well, through my head when the little girl said it's more than 16? <laughs> <laughs> I am the <a> professor, okay? <laughs> <laughs> uh, and she's 10 years old for crying out loud. <laughs> I thought she made a mistake. So, in a very cynical way, I said, Really? She said, many more. <laughs> <laughs> so I said, how many, many more? She said, many, many, many more. <laughs> so, so I said, why is that? He said, well, come look at the birthday cake. The thing Well, what? The birthday cake had the shape of a caterpillar you know what the caterpillar is? It's this little creature that has 42 legs like this, 42 legs like that. So the little girl said, if you cut the legs here, you get 42 pieces. you cut them on this side, you get another 42. It suddenly hit me that I was making my own assumption that the cake is round. You know what I call this moment when suddenly the obvious becomes obvious? What do you call that moment? Eureka! you call it Eureka. I call it the oh shit moment. <laughs> <laughs> can, I, can I just summarize what I've said really with well? this? I that. You make quite a few assumptions <laughs> in this simple exercise, right? You assume that you have to solve it on our own. You assume that pieces have to be equal. You assume vertical cut. You assume you cannot move the pieces. You assume a certain shape of the cave. You assume a certain shape for the knife. Lots of assumptions being made. But what have people told you to do to your assumptions? What have, what have you learned? We should forget them. We should forget them. them. Other ways. Question them. Question them. Yeah, you should question your assumptions. Am I the first one to tell you this? <coughs> of course not. You already knew that. but did you do it? No. You see what I'm trying to do with this exercise? You knew that the best way to solve the exercise was by talking to your neighbor, yet most of you tried to do it on your own. You knew that the best way was to question your assumptions, yet, yet you went through this exercise without bothering. What does that tell you? It's a good thing you're going to see. It tells me that just because you know something, doesn't mean you're going to do it. This is a big disease in life, in organizations. We know many things, but most of them are useless because you don't translate them into action. What is the purpose of education if you don't use it to achieve something some action? Just because it resides up there, easily forgotten, what is the purpose? Knowledge by itself it's useless. It hurts me to say this as an academic. You know basically what you are sending you is useless because really the most important thing is to take that knowledge and apply. Can I leave you with that thought? Thank you very much.
2: Oh my
0: Okay, so um We have about, say, 10, 15 minutes for questions. Any questions?
1: Oh, dear. (laughs) We have a microphone at the back if you want to ask any questions.
0: Up here in the front? I mean, you're... uh
1: Consulting companies, yeah, they earn the money. Consulting companies, and uh, you know, uh, most of my students actually end up in consulting companies, so it's very hard to say no, they are useless and so on. <laughs> <laughs> Look, consulting companies serve a purpose uh, for what they do. At the end of the day, use the market mechanism. says why do these corporations pay these consultants all this money if they get no value out of it? They must be really stupid to keep paying consultants fees and then, and then not getting value. So they must get some value. What is the value? The biggest value, in my opinion, that they get is an outsider perspective onto the business and a catalyst to action. What do I mean by that? I work with companies as a consultant. When I go in, they don't come on me to give them new ideas or give them new strategies. They have already thought about most of the issues I deal with. But the fact that an outsider, a consultant or an academic has come in and reinforced what they have uh, already thought about, <coughs> makes them take action. That's one question from the consultants. The other is a different perspective. Creativity takes place when we approach a task from different angles, different perspectives. We you have a company thinking about a strategy in a certain way, if you bring the consultant in, maybe they're going to bring a different perspective into it and you're going to get more ideas, better ideas, whatever. So, in a nutshell, I think that consulting companies have some value to offer. Whether it's the fees they charge is justified is it, another story. We have
0: a Sorry, up here in front. Uh, can you
1: say, um One minute.
2: You said different stages to um, convince some, somebody from I know to un- I understand, yes I think, I uh, you can, until yeah, I will. Process, yeah. Yes, this pro- pro- process, uh, could you um, make more clear the, the process, one more.
1: Uh, well, no, Look, I have the, it's very Most most people stop at step, step one. They communicate and they say, "Let's go, uh, let's go and climb Mount Everest Let's put a man on the moon. Let's do this, let's do that." I'm not saying is that communication is not enough. You have to tell people this is a strategy we want to do, achieve this and this. But more importantly, you have to explain to them why. Why is it so important to this company? And why is it so important to me? Why should I come and work 60, 70 hours a week for this organization? <laughs> What's in it for me? That's the second step in the process. The third is make it believable. You know, show some results to, for people to say, you know, if you could, maybe you could do this, maybe you can achieve this. And finally, you bring them on board by making them feel like we are members of this organization, of this team, and it's special about making Make them feel proud about what the company stands for and what the strategy of its organization is. You go into actual computers now, everybody like because they are winners. they're winners. They believe in what they are doing, they're making a difference, and they feel special about it. So, you know, it's a complicated thing, I think. I mean, don't um, think too much about it. What I'm trying to communicate is that just telling people is not enough. And this is what, unfortunately, this is what companies do. They develop their strategy with their consultants somewhere, and then they tell their people this is the strategy. Well, just telling them. It's not enough. You, know, you have to send it to them. Same with values. They develop value statements and they put them on the wall. They think that to the tree. It never works. You have to send values to people to internalize it. The same with vision. The same with anything. An idea. I have an idea. For people to actually link in the idea, you have to send it to them. So they have to say, it's a great idea, let's do it. You have to
0: actively send it to people. That's what I'm saying. Sorry, let's let's go to the middle section here. There's a microphone coming.
1: Do you think globalization, to a very large extent, hampers
3: uh, individual creativity because uh, I mean with such huge MNCs it discourages people with uh, a smaller capital base
1: and resources to become entrepreneurs. Yeah. It depends on the organization obviously there are some companies that uh, are more competitive than others but I think in general the big modern corporation constraints creativity and innovation. There's a reason for it, by the way. It's not sinister or really. <laughs> The big modern corporation is geared towards efficiency. They have to put structures and processes in place to deliver their products at a low cost to compete. And then all of a sudden you say, you have to do that, but also you have to innovate. Well, the two don't go well together, there are ways to overcome, but it's difficult to do both, and so on. Having said that, you know, I I, I used to have a colleague at London Business School from India called Sumatra Ghoshal. Unfortunately, he died three, four years ago. But Sumatra used to tell a very interesting story to his executives to make this point about how you promote innovation and uh, in big companies. He used to say that, I come from Calcutta, he said, in East India. And every July, I would take my children to downtown Calcutta so that my children could see their grandparents and so on. And they can look at the audience and ask them, how many of you have been to downtown Calcutta in the middle of July? Anybody? And then he ask them, what can you tell me about downtown Calcutta in the middle of July? And they will say, Well it's hot and humid and very smelly. And Sumatra will say, Yeah, it's so hot and so humid that every summer when I go back, the moment I get off the airplane, I go like this. <sighs> I deflate. And I spend two weeks of holidays in downtown Calcutta in July. Basically, I cannot do anything. I sleep, I wake up, I eat, I drink, and I sleep again. Which to me sounds like a perfect holiday. <laughs> <but> <laughs> <laughs> oh, okay. Now, he says compare that with a spring afternoon in the, in the region's park, Let's said. Can you imagine the beginning of springtime? the sky is blue, the sun is out, the air is cool and crisp. the birds are singing, the grass is green, the flowers are blooming, it's very nice. So one there, I used to go for a walk in Regent's Park, just a leisurely walk, but after a while I couldn't just walk. The forest, the park would fill me with energy, and I would run up and down and sing with the birds, and throw stones in the lake to kill a duck and things like that. <laughs> And then we look at the managers and say to them, please, think of your company now. Does your company remind you of downtown Calcutta in July? Does it remind you of the forest of Richard's Park in the spring? What's he saying? (laughs) Well, what he's saying is what kind of people do you have? you have people who are lazy and zombies and so on? (laughs) Do you have people who are full of energy? But whether you've got this kind of people, of this kind of people depends on the environment. The environment <laughs> is going to determine how people behave. If you create an environment that's stifling and suffocating, people will not express their individuality or creativity. If, on the other hand, you create an environment where people are allowed to question things, to make mistakes, to try things out, then you're going to get creativity. <laughs> so, it depends on the organization that you put in place, the environment that you put in place. The problem is, most big companies end up creating downtown Calcutta in July inside themselves. And then that obviously keeps on the credibility the of their yep,
0: Over on the side here.
3: Uh, you, are, you are claiming uh, with the, cut, uh, the cake cutting exercise. That we should be talking to our neighbor But aren't assumptions A societal issue Because, and how does that reconcile With uh, the uh, psychological Studies on groupthink Because if I come to it thinking, oh it looks like a caterpillar Then this guy thinks it looks like a circle This guy thinks it looks like a circle Then I say, how could I be so stupid Of course it's a circle Doesn't that defeat the whole purpose Very good, so you conform to the
1: incorrect majority of you Fair enough That there is a problem with conformity. In fact, this morning I was uh, teaching. Uh, to the student. basically I showed them some videos from the famous experiments back in the 1960s at Stanford, where this guy divided his students into policemen and prisoners to fight this experiment. In the end, the police started being so violent towards the students, and the students started to be prisoners. Students prisoners he started to have mental breakdowns. That they had to think about the after a while. So, and you know, we were conformed. Police, students, they did what everybody else was doing, even so though it was sinister and ugly and so on and so forth. Assumptions exist at the individual level, <coughs> at the company level, at the society level and so on. Assumptions are not necessarily bad. They have some good things to offer us and some bad things to offer us. The good thing is they make us efficient. We don't waste time thinking like, "There, that is a million times, let's do it again. If you ask my mother, should cost us go to church on Sunday morning, what do you think she's going to say? Well, why not to go to church? You're not going to sit there and say, the other day, well, let's do a cost-benefit analysis here, inside, and so on. You know, she has certain assumptions, certain beliefs that make her very, very efficient in how she reaches decisions, and so on. The same with us, when you ask you. So assumptions make us efficient. Assumptions also make us constrained thinking, passive thinkers, and so on. So the issue is not, let's not make assumptions. The issue is, the us question of assumptions. Think about them whether they are right or wrong. Now your question is more specific. You're saying, I make assumptions, she makes assumptions, she makes assumptions, he makes assumptions. Even if I talk to them, they're going to all force me to the same assumptions or the same thinking and so on. It's true, you're under danger, but you also have the chance that maybe one of them may have a different perspective on things and may give <laughs> you an know. idea. So the choices you have is, do I speak to just myself, or do I share with five, six other people? If I share, there's a chance that they're going to think just like myself, or they may give me an additional idea that may be helpful. I think you should be willing to take the risk. Not always, but open up, you never know. At the same time, don't go you're too young to be conforming to what everybody else says. If you disagree with what they say, say it. Just say, look, you're full of shit. That's not true. <laughs> you should
0: say it. You should be able to express it. So. Okay, let's just take a couple more. Over on this side here.
3: Hello. Uh, yeah, uh, Professor. Uh, just back to the cake cutting exercise. Um, And it's related to what uh, my colleague over there said um, about this conforming and um, about um, motivating people to actually make the right decisions based on what you tell them and what they hear. Uh, Now, when you asked us the question about the cake cutting exercise, uh, you did say, um, yeah, that how how could you cut the cake into two? Uh, how many pieces could you cut the cake into? Now, by using the word "cut" and by the way the actual question is phrased, that actually makes us conform to a certain, you know, train of thought. Because when when you tell someone how do you cut an object, essentially they're thinking about a knife. In no way, shape, or form, where we motivate it to actually think about a three dimensional cut in object in no way, shape or form where we motivated to think that the Why cake didn't was
1: three-dimensional. No
3: no no I mean I mean it's 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 more natural that more people would actually think about the cake as being two dimensional or even three dimensional. But if we even talk about the knife itself, when you use the word cuts, essentially people think about a knife and if at the end of the exercise
1: I even mentioned the knife.
3: Well, there you go, and a knife, a knife, a knife <laughs> so it's is... It's my fault, is it? <laughs> well, I, well, and again, this, this isn't about, you know, pointing fingers, and I, 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 I wouldn't presume to say it's your fault, but I'm just saying that based of how, you know, you ask people questions and based on what you tell them, you can either be motivational or you can condition their minds to, you know, think in a certain Very good. train. I, it's just an observation.
1: I totally agree with you. You could, uh, how you frame something... It depends how people behave. At the end of the day, and I I specifically frame this exercise such a way so that I not mess it up. What do I mean by that? You remember how I started out? I said, "When did I get this exercise?" It's from my local elementary school. The teacher gave it to a group of ten-year-old kids, and so on and so forth. Right? By framing it like this, I make you think, "Oh, it's easy. It's okay. I can do it." Of course, I started out by saying, let me give you this exercise. It looks very easy, but I've been trying it for 20 years now on a variety of audiences. Never once has anybody come up with the answer. <laughs> do you think they would have behaved in a different way if I framed it like that? <laughs> of course. Of course, you'll do. And, uh, you know, when you go back to how do you sell strategy or ideas, how you frame something will influence everybody else on what they think about it and so on. It's interesting, though, how should I have. This problem to you if I didn't mention the knife and the cake. How else would I have said it so as not to condition (laughs) it? You have a cake, see how many pieces you can cut it into?
2: It's okay, just a thought. Okay,
0: one one last question. Anyone?
2: Oh, here on the side, yeah.
1: are companies out there, I mean the, the, what you teach in the classroom is the perfect way, you know you're not but at
2: a certain extent like certain column some of these, yeah
1: there are companies that have institutionalized uh, questioning culture, I think is very very helpful for an organization, like for example 3M 3M is a classic case of a company that is very innovative and they have a culture that says question things, take time off don't obey authority. You know, don't conform. The kind of things that we've been talking about. 3M would be an example like that. Some of the high-tech companies of today, the Google's of the world, the eBay, you know, these are companies where they have put the culture in that's very, very similar to what I'm talking about here. But you know, no company is perfect, and no company is, you know, at the other extreme. If you are successful, it means you are doing something right. And So, so I think you're likely to find out there some companies that
2: do some of
1: these things I'm talking about. I'm not but not everything. So that's
2: because they haven't bought my
0: book. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Great. Thank you very much, Thank Professor Marquitas. Okay. Sorry. Just a quick quick announcement. The next um, lecture in this series is on the 21st of July. Professor Mick Cox is going to talk about President Obama and the end of the American Empire. And also we now have a drinks reception right outside that you're all welcome to.